there are two fronts to God's kingdom plan. There's two fronts. There is salvation and there's also judgment. God is doing both things in this world. God advances his program on, on the one hand by redeeming and rescuing his people. And we love that. We celebrate that. We want to participate in that. But on the other hand, God also advances his program through the destruction of his enemies. It's maybe a little less comfortable to think about, but it's true. Both acts, both kinds of acts, whether it's salvation or whether it's judgment, both acts display God's glory in the world. And that is what his ultimate purpose is in all that he does. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what God is doing in this world. Revelation 15.4, John sees a vision, and he sees a multitude of the redeemed who are singing. And they say, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's holiness, his righteous acts have been revealed both in his works of salvation and in his works of judgment. In fact, God's plan of salvation is often accomplished specifically in and through judgment. We've seen this already in the book of Genesis. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, what did God promise them? He said that one of their descendants would crush the head of the serpent. God's act of judgment on the serpent would be the thing that actually rescues his people from the curse of sin and death. We saw it in the flood. There's a world that is growing increasingly corrupt, and God destroys everything, but he provides salvation and deliverance through that judgment for Noah and his family through the ark. We see these same themes here in Genesis chapter 19. As Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, but Lot and his family are delivered. Salvation through judgment. Of course, we ultimately see this at the cross, don't we? As the thing that brings us salvation is the outpouring of God's justice and his wrath on Jesus Christ. This theme, these twin themes really thread all the way throughout scripture. We will see it at the end of days as well when Jesus returns to judge, but also to gather his people for the final salvation. Salvation through judgment. So chapter 19, keep this theme in the back of your mind. This story that we find in 19 is sort of an interlude uh, in the Abraham narrative. For the last several weeks, we've been tracing the story of Abraham. It starts in chapter 12. And now in chapter 19, we kind of have this little detour, this interlude that focuses on Lot and his family. But as we talked about briefly last week, this story, even though Abraham isn't featured here, is actually important to the development of Abraham's understanding of who his God is. If Abraham is going to be in covenant relationship with God, he must know who his God is and what his God is like. Remember back in chapter 17, God had told him, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. These are the ethical implications of being in covenant relationship with God. You might ask the question, why? Why must he walk before the Lord and be blameless? Genesis 19 gives us a sobering answer. Be blameless, Abraham, because God is holy and just and unrighteousness brings destruction. Be blameless, Abraham, because tolerance of sin and moral compromise will wreck your life. 
call to be blameless is no simple suggestion. It's a matter of life and death. And as we'll see later, Abraham himself sees the smoke rising from the destruction of these cities. And he knows exactly what has happened. And he knows why. Because the judge of all the earth has done what is right. This story takes place in three different scenes. Uh, if you think of this like a movie, there's sort of three different sets uh, that, that, that where all the action takes place. The first scene is inside the city of Sodom. We see several different things happening here. And then the, the, the camera pans and we see the scenes that take place outside the city. And then the final closing epilogue takes place in the darkness of a cave near the small town of Zoar. As these three scenes unfold, what we learn is that unrighteousness brings judgment for the wicked and has a corrosive effect on the righteous. Unrighteousness brings destructive destruction for the wicked. It's an unavoidable lesson we learn. But also unrighteousness, wickedness, sin has a corrosive effect on even the righteous. We see, first of all, in verses 1 through 14, scene number one is in Sodom. We see that corruption is confirmed and a warning is announced. Scene one, corruption is confirmed and warning is announced in verses 1 through 14. This takes place in Sodom. The story opens with the arrival of two angelic visitors. We see this in verses 1 through 4. The two angels, these are the two that had visited Abraham previously, along with the pre-incarnate Christ. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So these two angelic visitors arrive, but why is Lot in Sodom? According to chapter 13, verse 13, the men of Sodom, Moses tells us, were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. And yet here is Lot, whom the New Testament tells us was actually a righteous man. He is related to Abraham, the the man of faith who's been called, the, the, the chosen one who's to bear blessing to the world. What is Lot doing in Sodom? Looking back, we can trace a very sad progression. It's been noted by many uh, preachers and commentators alike. In chapter 13, 10, you remember that Lot and, Ad- or Lot and Abraham, who'd been dwelling together, started to have tension because they both were growing more and more wealthy. They had more and more herds, and the land couldn't support them both. And in faith and humility, Abraham says, you take first dibs. You take whatever part of the land you want. I'll go the opposite direction. And when that happened, in chapter 13, verse 10, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes And he saw, and what he saw was the prosperity of the plain. This valley where the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and several other smaller towns were located, that it was fruitful, it was well watered, and it was prosperous. Lot may have been foolish, but he was no dummy. He knew that that is going to be the place where my flocks will grow the most, where I can be most enriched, and where I can work my way up the ladder. It's interesting, the language there is reflective of Eve in the garden who looked and saw. And then what did Eve do? She took. Well, Lot does the same thing. He chose that direction. In verse 12 of chapter 13, not only did he see that it was prosperous, but he moved his tent as far as Sodom. 
closer and closer to the wicked city. In chapter 14, verse 12, we're told that Lot was actually eventually living in Sodom. He sees it, he moves towards it, and eventually he settles down within the limits of the city. And here in chapter 19, we find Lot not only living in the city of Sodom, but he's sitting at the gate. Now, the gate was the center of business dealings. The gate was, was the place where political action happened. This shows that Lot had climbed the social ladder in Sodom. He was part of the fabric of the culture and the society. He had achieved a place of influence. He'd gotten exactly what he wanted. It's interesting, he had gotten the same thing that Abraham actually refused in chapter 14. Remember when, when Sodom had been overthrown by these invaders and Abraham goes and rescues Lot and his family and all the possessions and the women and children from Sodom. And the king of Sodom offered all of these riches to Abraham. But that would have entangled him in the city. And Abraham said, no, I, will, I don't want anyone to think, I don't want anyone to be able to say that Sodom has made me rich. Well, Lot didn't have a problem with that. He got exactly what he wanted, which Abraham, the man of faith, righteous Abraham, had refused. He had compromised, and he is here sitting in the very gate of Sodom, fully entangled in that society and culture. But despite his compromise, Lot is still unlike the residents of Sodom. We see here that he responds to these angels' uh, visitation with an offer of hospitality. And that hospitality reminds us of what we saw last week with Abraham. Abraham bowed himself to the, to the ground and invited these visitors to stay. He fed them generously and served them. And Lot here does the same thing. His hospitality is evidence of his remaining righteousness. Lot fulfilled his duty to care for these travelers. And as we will see, he wanted to protect them from what he knew was likely to happen if they had carried out their original plan of just camping out in the town square. Now we have to ask, why are these visitors here? These two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Why? What was the purpose of their visit? Well, according to chapter 18, they had come to investigate the outcry against Sodom. If you look back at verse 20, God had told Abraham, this is in chapter 18, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know it. Just like the blood of Abel cried from the ground and stirred up God's sense of justice and righteousness, so too Sodom's sins could no longer be tolerated and God had come to investigate. Sadly, the reports of corruption that had reached the ears of the Lord will soon be confirmed beyond all doubt. Look with me at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to meet the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. First, we see the corruption of Sodom confirmed in the hearts and the, in the, the lives, the actions of these residents. Sodom was infamous for their practice of homosexuality. And their unbridled lust here is not hidden. It is publicly announced. They desire to, quote-unquote, know these men, which biblically is a euphemism for carnal sexual experience. While some have argued that it is male-on-male rape that is being condemned in this story, not simply same-sex relations. And others have argued that it was their lack of hospitality that was the result, that, that was the cause of their judgment. The testimony of Scripture tells us otherwise. In Jude, verse 7, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And Jude tells us that the judgment on them was to serve as a warning and an example to us all. You see, this behavior was contrary to God's design, and it is contrary to God's will. Later, homosexual practice would be outlawed for the nation Israel. God would tell them in Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. It's a strong word. It's something that is repulsive to God, something that he hates. And it says, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Later, Paul would tell the Romans in the New Testament that God's righteous wrath is revealed against those who suppress the knowledge of the truth and worship the creation instead of the creator. Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up, Romans 1.26, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to not be done. This is a prime example in this chapter of this kind of sin. When it is full-blown, when it is unrestrained, The nature of Sodom's sin was brazen. It was hard-hearted. They were fully given over to their unbridled lusts. Later, Jerusalem would be condemned by the prophet Isaiah, and he would accuse them of acting like Sodom. He says, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. It's not just that they're engaging these activities. They're boldly announcing it to the world. They're not hiding it. These people in Sodom are not those whose spirit was willing, but their flesh is weak. They were not like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who may wrestle and struggle with same-sex attraction, but they fight against that and they seek to turn from it. No, these are people who are committed wholesale to their lusts. They celebrate their sin. They revel in their sin. And they pursue their sin even with violence. The wickedness of this city is quickly demonstrated Rather than hospitably receive these visitors, the men of Sodom went to use and abuse them. And the wickedness here is not just, it's not just a couple bad apples. There's no baby in the bathwater. The wickedness is comprehensive and violent, verse 4. Notice the language that it uses here. 
It says, the men of the city, to clarify, the men of Sodom, to be even more specific, both young and old, to be comprehensive, all the people, and to erase any doubt to the last man. Their reputation is well-deserved. But what about Lot? The wickedness of the inhabitants of the city has been confirmed. Their corruption is evident and apparent. Well, what about Lot? Notice how Lot responds to their request. Send these men out that we may know them. He responds on behalf of his guests in verses 6 through 8. He went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. At some level, Lot's sense of righteousness is still intact. He knows that this is not right. But notice how, what his proposed solution is. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Though Lot courageously protests their plans, we see that he too has been corrupted. He pleads with them not to do wickedly, which is noble, but his solution to offer his daughters reveals a twisted and distorted sense of morality. The custom of the day was to care for your visitors, and your honor depended on it. Abraham and Lot both went to great lengths to care for these travelers and to take care of them, and that's a good thing. But when the customs of society come to have more weight than the moral duties of a father to protect his children, you know that something is off. Something is broken. His sense of discernment has been twisted. He has a a distorted sense of righteousness and morality. His tolerance of sin and his immersion in that society, in that culture, has started to infect his thinking. Does Lot's suggestion appease the mob? No. Instead of saying, oh yeah, that's a good idea, they actually get angry and set their sights on Lot himself. Look at verse 9. Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard. They start going after Lot himself. Unrestrained lust now gives way to unrestrained anger. The principle is true, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament or whether it's in our lives today in our society. Darkness hates the light. And Lot's judgment of saying that what they're doing is wicked and his refusal to give them what they want, it infuriates them. Who does he think he is? This sojourner, you're not from here. You're not one of us. Who are you to judge us? We'll show you. And if you don't know this already, be informed that you can expect the same reaction today if you dare to challenge the moral decay of our culture. Who are you to tell me what we can't do behind closed doors? Who are you to tell us what marriage is? Who are you to tell me what to do with my body and my fetus? There will be anger and violence if you dare to confront the moral rot and decay of our culture. And that's what Lot experiences here. Ironically, the ones that Lot is trying to rescue end up now rescuing him, verses 10 through 11. They reach out the door, they grab him, and they strike all these men with blindness. This act of judgment on the mob, of of taking their sight away, is another irony. The men who love darkness are made blind. The punishment fits the crime. 
They cannot see what's right in front of them. What a picture of what sin does to us. When you pursue your lusts, when you go after what is evil and twisted and distorted, it reveals blindness and it results in more blindness. Does this disperse the crowd? No. The depth of their depravity is evident in that they're undeterred and they wear themselves out groping for the door. They won't let it go. This is an ugly and scary scene. Having seen all they need to see, the angels now announce their intentions to Lot, and they warn him of judgment and urge him to gather his loved ones and escape. Look in verses 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It's interesting here, the word destroy that, that occurs multiple times in, this, in these few verses. It's actually the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 6. When God tells Noah about the flood that is coming to destroy the earth and to destroy the inhabitants of the earth. Judgment was coming. And Lot is told to go and warn those that he loved, those who were part of his family, because judgment is coming. But just as Sarah laughed at the promise of blessing in chapter 18 that came from these angels, so his sons-in-law laugh at the promise of judgment. They don't believe him. Lot couldn't talk the men of the city out of their wickedness. He was unable to persuade them But he also couldn't talk these two out of their complacency. They don't take him seriously and they foolishly ignore his warning. The men of the city are corrupt. The moral sense of Lot, although not totally destroyed, has been infected. He is corrupt. And we see here that the judgment of Lot's sons-in-law is also fatally corrupted. Then the scene shifts. This is everything that happens inside the city. Verses 20, or 15 through 29, we see the scene shift to outside the city. While corruption has been confirmed, now we see deliverance and destruction. Deliverance and destruction. But it's sad. Lot's foolishness that we saw already, moving into the city, his twisted sense of judgment, he still doesn't get it and he lingers. Look in verses 15 through 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away with the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. 
In this scene, the mercy of God is shown as God rescues Lot and his family despite their resistance. Although Lot was a willing messenger, he was quick to tell his sons-in-law, God is going to destroy this city. Come, we must flee, we must escape. He's unwilling to actually practice what he preaches when the moment comes. He doesn't want to leave. It says that he lingers. He lingers. So for a second time now, the angels have to grab Lot by the hand and drag him to safety. Moses tells us explicitly that this was because of God's mercy on him. Aren't you thankful that God is merciful? And that even though we are often too foolish to know what's good for us, God in his mercy often overrules our foolish choices and grabs us by the heart and drags us to safety. God has compassion on this foolish and confused man and overcomes his resistance, rescues him, drags him out of the city. But not only does Lot linger, we also see that he still longs for what he had in Sodom. Even in rescue, Lot doesn't seem to want to comply with the, with the instructions he's been given. He negotiates and he begs to be allowed to go to a little town called Zoar. The language of this, of this passage indicates that Sodom and Gomorrah and really several other cities, that it's this whole region that's about to be destroyed. And Lot says he's fearful he won't be able to make it all the way to the hills. It's too far for me, an old man. Can you let me go just to this little city instead? Do I really have to go all the way to the hills? Do I really have to cut off my hand and gouge out my eye to be rid of sin? Do I really have to repent? You see the logic there. Maybe you recognize it in your own life as well. Even now, Lot desires to be in the cities of the plain with everything the cities had to offer, their prosperity and their culture and their society, the positions of prominence that were there to be had. As Derek Kidner says, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again. You can almost sense the angel's frustration. Lot feels he can't make it to the hills, but the angel can't pour out destruction until Lot is out of the way, so he concedes. I can do nothing until you are out of here, so sure, fine. Go to your little city, and I will not destroy that city. And so the name of the city was called Zoar. There's a play on words there, the, the little one. Lot's like, please, just this little one. He negotiates, and the angel says, fine. Fine. And then we see that judgment falls. Judgment falls in verses 23 through 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That's the last chapter when he was interceding and speaking with God. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley... God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. All the tension has been building. 
There's been this repeated threat of judgment. We've seen that this judgment is well-deserved. And unless this judgment comes, it's actually dangerous for Lot and these angelic visitors to be there. But then finally, the ominous threat of judgment and destruction, finally, it, it all finally erupts there in verse 23, 24, 25. You might notice the double emphasis in verse 24 on the Lord. And this is not just redundant writing because Moses isn't a good writer. That's on purpose. He's emphasizing that this was done by the hand of God. This is no natural disaster. It's not just a random earthquake and a volcano. It's not just an unfortunate lightning strike and a, you know, a, a prairie fire. This is, this is an intentional and catastrophic outpouring of God's wrath on both people and place. Even the plants are destroyed. No one will be able to inhabit this land once again. If you've been to Israel, you know that this region is salty and it is desolate. Nothing grows there. It's a barren desert. This once fruitful plain has now been torched and made uninhabitable. The population eradicated. The city overturned. But notice what happens in verse 26. The judgment not only falls on the cities of the plain, it also falls on the family of Lot. The command to flee earlier had been accompanied by a command not to look back. The angel had told them this. Verse 17, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Keep your eyes directly ahead, the angels warn them. But Lot's wife directly disobeys this clear instruction. She looks back and instantly loses her life. She had been physically dragged from the city, but her heart was still there, wasn't it? They had taken her out of Sodom, but they couldn't take Sodom out of her. And so, as Alan Ross says, the city was reduced to ruin and Lot's wife to a monument of disobedience. And then, once again, we have Abraham finally brought back onto the scene. As judgment falls miles away, Abraham is watching. He sees and he knows the smoke was the definitive answer to his question. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And as he saw the smoke which would have been at least 20, perhaps even 40 miles away. He could see evidence of the destruction rising in the southern sky. He knew what had happened. He knew what God had done. But notice, it's not only Abraham who's seeing something. God also sees. Specifically, God remembers in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. So Abraham remembers God. God now remembers Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembers Abraham. He, remember, he remembers Abraham's prayer. Lord, if there are any righteous there, will you overthrow the city? He remembers Abraham's work of intercession. And so for the sake of a righteous remnant, God had told Abraham, if there are even 10 righteous there, for the sake of those 10, I will not destroy the whole city. But there was no righteous remnant. But for the sake of righteous Abraham, God did spare Lot. You see, God is both just and merciful. He is just and merciful. Salvation through judgment. You know, Lot didn't really deserve to be rescued, did he? As we see this portrait here, it's really a sad thing. He's a pathetic character. But because of Abraham's relationship to Lot and because of his intercession for Lot, God spared him. 
And you know it's the same thing with us, isn't it? Who among us deserves to be saved? We don't deserve to be rescued from God's wrath either, but because of our relationship to Jesus and because of Jesus' work, his intercession, his work of atonement on our behalf, we too are spared just like Lot. This is a sad and ugly story that ends with a bang, but we kind of wish that this was the end. It's hard to imagine things actually getting worse, but sadly they do. There's, a, there's an epilogue in verses 30 through 38, a third scene. We've, we've, we've seen the things that happen inside of Sodom. We've witnessed the scene outside the city as it's destroyed. And then the closing scene takes place in a cave. And it's a shameful end to Lot's story. Verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that, he, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. It's even hard to read that and think about how awful and shameful this event was. Even after the destruction of the city, this scene shows us that the spirit of Sodom lived on in those who had embraced life in that city. As we've often seen in Genesis, when, when people are filled with fear rather than faith, people make bad choices. And the daughters are afraid, Lot is afraid, and they resort to what they know, which is the culture and the logic and the kind of things that's been imprinted on them from living all those years in Sodom. We see Lot's fear. He's afraid to live in Zoar. So he leaves the city and he goes to the hills, which is the place he was supposed to go in the first place, right? We don't, we're not told here what he's afraid of. Is he afraid after being in Zoar, seeing that they are wicked just like Sodom? Maybe he's afraid that judgment will be poured out on them. Or perhaps he's afraid of retribution. Perhaps his reputation precedes him and the people of Zoar know that this man, Lot, has something to do with what just happened all around us. We're not told why he's afraid, but simply that he is afraid, so they go to this cave. And then we're told that his daughters are afraid. They're afraid of extinction. Everything they know has been destroyed. The one city that's nearby, they can't dwell there. There's no one that left for them to marry. They will have no children. There will be no one to care for them and provide for them. Their father is growing old. He won't be able to hunt or farm or meet their needs. They will have no children, no legacy. They're afraid of all this, so... They resort to a plot, and it's a perverse and a grievous plot. 
And it's sadly ironic, too. You know, if you go back earlier in the chapter, remember that Lot had offered his daughters without their consent for the sexual gratification of the mob. And now, funny turn of events, they use him without his consent for the sexual agenda of procreation. The apple has not fallen far from the tree. And we notice here once again the foolishness of Lot. He's been foolish in moving into the city. He was foolish for lingering in the city. He was foolish for negotiating with the angels. And now we see that he's completely oblivious to the manipulation of his daughters. Not just once, but twice. You've heard the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He has no idea what's going on. And the tragic result of their incest is perennial enemies for Israel. Moab, who is the father of the Moabites. Moab means from my father. And the Moabites would be a perpetual enemy to Israel, warring against them and seducing them into idolatry and immorality that would bring God's judgment on his chosen people. Also the Ammonites, who were the descendants of Ben-Ami, which means son of my people or son of my kinsmen. The names of these boys commemorates the very means by which they were conceived. And Israel would have problems because of this for years and years and years. The virus of human sinfulness is incredibly resilient. Sodom has been destroyed, but the ethos of Sodom lives on. The consequences of Lot's assimilation to the sinful culture was that he lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his status in the city. He lost his wife. He lost his possessions. And he lost his integrity. He's left with nothing but a legacy of shame. How do we respond to all this? I mean, in in one sense, we read it and we're shocked. We're grossed out, rightly so. But how can we learn? What is it that God wants to tell us this morning as we read this account? Number one. We need to understand the reality of sin's cost. We must understand the reality of sin's cost. The crystal clear truth is that unrighteousness brings judgment for the wicked and also that it has a corrosive effect on the righteous. This serves as a warning to us. We are to be warned this morning by this story. Even if you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus You know what's right and wrong. You want to follow the Lord. But we need to understand that the principle of reaping and sowing is true even for those who belong to God. Lot is called in 2 Peter chapter 2 a righteous man whose heart was vexed. He was grieved by the things he saw going on around him. But still, he made foolish choices and he reaped what he sowed. You know, the destruction that sin brings... On one hand, we know there's this cataclysmic final end destruction, right? The destruction of hell, the final judgment of God. But we also see here a gradual, slow self-destruction. That sin wreaks this kind of havoc in our lives. Lot's life slowly unravels. He escapes with his life by God's mercy, but not much else. Everything else is gone. Let me ask you this morning, do you think it will be different for you than it was for Lot? If you embrace 
the sin of this world, if you harbor these things in your life, if you become infected with, with the sinful uh, reasoning and the foolishness of this world, do you think it will be different for you than it was for Lot? The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And you may be a child of God, and your soul may be spared because of God's mercy, but you may lose everything else. But you don't have to. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. We need to beware the foolish compromise of Lot. We need to be warned, if you love the world, friends, if you love this world that we live in, and if you tolerate sin, if you become comfortable with sin, the sins of others and the sins of your own life, if you rationalize it away, if you justify it, if it becomes not really a big deal to you, it will affect you. And and we see this laid out very clearly in this story, but this is more than just a matter of proximity. Okay, this, this story is not teaching us that we should all move to rural Nevada and build a little compound and only live together. That's actually impossible. Paul tells us in the New Testament, I'm not telling you to go to, to go out of the world, that's actually impossible. You live here, but are you at home here? There's a big difference. Lot was very at home in Sodom. Are you at home in our culture? Are you at home and comfortable with your sin and, and, and the sinful society we live in? This is not just a matter of proximity. It's a matter of the heart. You need to examine your heart this morning. Proverbs 4 tells us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward. Maybe he's remembering the story of Lot's wife here. Let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is wisdom, friends. It is wisdom for us to turn away from evil, to set our gaze ahead, and to guard our hearts with vigilance. To fail to do this is foolishness, and it will bear bad fruit in your life. The reality is we are living in Sodom today. Our culture celebrates sexual deviancy and is reaping the consequences We need to hear the warning of the angel, do not look back. Is it possible that some of us here this morning, we live a certain sort of upright life. We know that we're not supposed to do certain things. We're not supposed to live a certain way. And we try to do the right thing. But in reality, our heart still wants and longs for those things. We look upon the people who live according to the flesh. And maybe we're a little bit jealous. Think, Man, it would be fun to do that. That sounds like freedom to me, and I feel so constrained and limited by God's law. Are you looking back? Do you look to that other person who's living for material gain? Say, man, if I were to play the game like him, I'm sure I could get that promotion. I wish I had that kind of a paycheck, because then we could go on these trips, and we could own this car, and I could get the latest clothes and the nicest technology and a better car. But I guess I have to settle for you know, not loving money. Are you looking back? Is your heart still bent that direction? We need to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. You see, it's possible for us to live in a bubble. You can live out in rural western Kansas somewhere and still have a heart that completely loves the world. 1 John 2, 15. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see in this story of Sodom the desires of the flesh, carnal sexual lust. We see the desires of the eyes, Lot's desire for prosperity, and we see the pride of life, wanting a legacy, wanting a name, wanting status, wanting reputation. Lot loved the world, and it brought destruction. Alan Ross comments on this. He says, if people crave the best of this world along with the world to come, they may receive neither. Think about that. Don't waste your life living for all that this world can offer because you can't actually ever even get it all. And even if you do, it won't make you happy. And if you sell your soul living for the things of the world, you will not inherit the world to come. That is evidence of a heart that has never repented and believed. You may be a believer and avert the wrath of God but still experience the devastating consequences of sin. We're seeing this in our culture right now. If any of you watch the news, uh, you see that there is an inquisition going on right now when it comes to sexual assault, which is a good thing. I mean, let it be brought into the light. Uh, Let justice be done. That is a good thing. But the sad reality is our culture is simply reaping what we've sown. The sexual revolution that started in the 60s that has advanced now to like light speed, it's breaking everything. And we shouldn't be surprised. The sexual revolution has normalized sexual sin, has normalized sexual confusion. It's hard for us to even clearly say what's a boy and what's a girl anymore. Immorality has been celebrated. It has been promoted. It's it's consumed as entertainment. We see it in the political realm. Politicians who are drunk with power and unrestrained lust. We see it in the entertainment industry. They've been selling and portraying sexual immorality for entertainment, and now they're acting shocked when the people who promote such things are actually perpetrators in real life of such wickedness. The consumption of pornography has destroyed countless marriages. It has twisted and inflamed the desires and appetites of men and women alike. Friends, all this has a cost. It all has a cost. Marriages have been destroyed. Children have been harmed. Women have been exploited. Men have been enslaved and emasculated. Sexual immorality brings confusion and pain and heartache and slavery instead of the pleasure and freedom that it promises. I want to exhort you this morning, don't rationalize any of this away. Don't get comfortable with your sin like Lot did. He underestimated the seriousness of of Sodom's sin. Perhaps some of you have underestimated the seriousness of sin. I've heard other believers say, you know what, I can watch these movies and these films, even though it contains this graphic sexual immorality. It it doesn't bother me. I'm able to handle it. That's kind of scary if that doesn't bother you, because it should bother you. If you're able to handle it, if you've been able to rationalize these things away, and to justify such wickedness, what that shows is that you've become conformed to our culture. Sodom has infected your thinking and your judgment. If you say, you know what, me and my boyfriend or girlfriend can do these things, and we know we won't go too far, 
Or even if we do, what's the big deal? We're going to get married anyway. Friends, that is dangerous compromise. And it will bring pain and heartache into your life. If you're sitting there in front of your computer screen all alone saying, this doesn't harm anyone. This is just me. Don't be so foolish. Don't be so foolish. Lot got very comfortable with sin. He underestimated the seriousness of Sodom's sin, so he moved close. He moved in. And he and his family became desensitized and infected by the immorality of the city. This is fatally foolish. What is the opposite of this? Foolishness? It's wisdom. And how do we get wisdom? Proverbs tells us, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That leads us to our second point. Not only do we need to understand the cost of sin, we need to feel the weight of glory. Feel the weight of glory. As I'm preaching this this morning, as you're hopefully envisioning these events in your mind, I don't want you just to be informed. This is more than a history lesson. I want you to feel the weight of glory. We see in this story a sobering display of judgment and salvation. And this display of judgment and salvation reveals to us the glory of God. As we read this story, we ought to take note. Do not be deceived. There's a cost to sin. But we also need to catch a glimpse of who God is and what God is like. This should shape our view of God, that there is, number one, judgment for those who reject God. And we ought to fear him and take this threat of judgment seriously. Sodom and Gomorrah foreshadow the future judgment that is coming. We need to have a right view of God, that he is not merely a sentimental father, the Santa Claus in the sky who can help you be happy and fulfilled in life. He is a righteous judge. He is a God who hates sin. He is a God who hates uh, that which revolts his holy nature, his, that which rebels against his holy design. He hates sexual violence. He hates that which defiles and dehumanizes people who are made in his image. There is a day of judgment that is coming. Sodom and Gomorrah on a global scale. And only fools will laugh at this warning. Don't be a fool this morning. 2 Peter 2.6 says that if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the city, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Peter says, if all this is true, then this. Then it must be true that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Salvation through judgment. God is perfectly just and amazingly merciful. We need to see both. We need to understand that he is both destroyer and deliverer. We must see both. There is judgment coming, but we also see in this, in this story a pattern that points to Jesus. Just as the ark was the only means of escaping the flood, and just as the message of the angels was a warning that must be heeded by Lot and his family. So too we have hope of rescue from the judgment that is coming. It is through the cross of Christ. We too have received a message. Jesus has come. 
And he's revealed to us who the Father is. And he's accomplished for us what is necessary for salvation. He says, you can be sheltered from the wrath that is coming if you come close to my cross. If you hide beneath the shadow of my wings. If you trust in my sacrifice and believe that I have absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf so that you can be spared. It's in the gospel that we find not only rescue from the judgment to come, but if you find yourself infected with the sin of this world, your heart turned away from God, know this, that in the gospel we also find freedom from our self-destructive sins. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we don't have to be slaves any longer. We can find freedom in Christ if you are a rescued sinner this morning, if the mercy of God has grabbed you and drug you to safety, then worship him for his grace. He is the destroyer, but he is also the deliverer. He brings judgment, but he has also provided salvation. He is holy, but he is also gracious and loving and merciful. He's grabbed many of us by the heart and pulled us to safety to the foot of his cross, and there we are sheltered from the wrath of God. I'm just going to throw this out there. If any of you are convicted this morning because there's sin in your life that you know is destructive, um, we don't do usually invitations here where I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and come forward, but I want you to come talk to me afterwards because I want to help you. I want to walk with you. And there's other men and women here as well who can help you, who can walk with you. Don't be foolish enough to say, because I know what some of you are thinking right now. Like, yeah, he's right. I need to work harder on that. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try harder. You've already tried, and that's why you're still stuck in it. If you could have done it by yourself, you would have by this point. So be wise enough and humble enough to recognize you need help. Confession and repentance brings freedom and joy. It's not really at this point in the notes. I just want to say that right now. Please come talk to me after. I want to offer you help. I want to show you what God's word says about freedom and victory and joy because it is there to be had. In conclusion, we need to understand the cost of our sin. Don't be so foolish to think that it won't affect you. But we also must feel the weight of glory. See who God is, just and merciful. And the response, therefore, for us is to repent of our sin, to heed the call to flee to Christ, and let's never look back. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith while we run this race. Don't get entangled. Look to him. Look to him. Fear him. Grow in wisdom. Love him. And experience his mercy and his grace. Lord in heaven, we are humbled this morning because as we read the story of Lot, we're reminded of our own foolishness. We are so slow often to heed your warnings. And we know that our thinking is often conformed to this world. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would transform and renew our minds by your word. That you would press us into the mold of Jesus and not into the mold of this world. That we would not rationalize our sin or become comfortable with the sin of this world. Lord, give us a holy distaste for the temptations around us. We pray, God, that you would grieve our hearts when we see that which grieves your heart. Strip away the calluses from our conscience. Make us sensitive once again. And Lord, we pray that you would drive the foolishness out of our hearts. Help us to see you as you truly are and to fear you that we might grow in wisdom. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who don't know you, 
who are residents of Sodom, as it were, destined for eternal damnation and judgment. I pray that this morning they would hear the invitation to come and escape, to flee the wrath to come. I pray that today they would place their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who might be here just maybe even because they have to be here and they want to look back. Maybe their parents made them come or their spouse made them come or maybe their guilty conscience makes them come, but they really don't love you. They love the world. I pray that today you would transform their thinking. They would take seriously the warnings here and they would come to Christ. We pray all this, Lord, because we want you to be glorified. We want your program of salvation to be moved forward so that your name might be made famous and your glory might fill the earth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.